Welcome to Open Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. Today we bring you a conversation between Joao Chavez and Jonathan Calvillo about the Saints of Santa Ana, faith and ethnicity in a Mexican-majority city. For more information about today's episode, please visit us at htiopenplaza.org. All right, welcome to Open Plaza. I'm João Chavez, Assistant Director for Programming with the Hispanic Theological Initiative, and I'm here with Jonathan Calvillo, Assistant Director for Sociology uh, at the Boston University School of Theology. And we're going to be talking about his upcoming book, The Saints of Santa Ana, Faith and Ethnicity in a Mexican Majority City. Jonathan, nice to see you, man. Well, it's good to see you too, and it's uh, an honor to be here. Glad, glad, glad that you joined us. So, Jonathan, before we before we, we start talking a little more about your book, um, I mean, you are a theologically trained trained sociologist. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the path that 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 took you from where you from where you started all the way to being a, a professor of sociology in a school of theology? Yeah, certainly. So, the path for me involved the convergence of several different streams. Uh, I would say, first of all, my own personal experience uh, growing up in a predominantly Latinx, Latino church. Uh, for me, ministry was always a part of my life. Uh, mm. I was involved in some sort of leadership position at the church that I grew up in. My parents were not ministers, formally speaking, but they were always in lay leadership. And so uh, you could say I followed in their pathway in terms of my own personal engagement. And so along the way, uh, I felt a sense of calling in my own life to be more involved in formal ministry. And so I decided to go to a Christian university where I could study theology uh, and then eventually stuck around and uh, did an MDiv program there. And this was at uh, Talbot School of Theology. Um, and so from there, uh, or let me say along the way, I, was, uh, I had the opportunity to get involved in a variety of different types of ministries and really felt a sense of uh, commitment toward urban communities, um, working class urban communities. And I was involved in uh, community work with, I would say, predominantly uh, immigrant, uh, immigrant residents in a neighborhood that I became very close to, which eventually um, form, came to form part of the study that we'll be talking about today. But I would say that a lot of my initial formation had to do with what I was observing in the community that I was working in, and I got involved in a lot of nonprofit work in the community there. And so I would say my ministry training, a lot of it, a lot of it began to now flow into work in the nonprofit sector. And I would say faith-based nonprofit work combined with um, church work, both within a local congregation, but then also um, doing work sort of across congregations, doing some community organizing type work. And so a lot of that shows up in the types of questions that I then began to ask uh, in my research as a sociologist. So doing this kind of work in the community brought me to ask a lot of questions about the role of faith in shaping the experiences of uh, Latinx immigrants in and this goes back to my own personal history, shaping the trajectories of second and third generation uh, Latinos, uh, thinking about how faith shaped the identities of um, congregants in these uh, multi-generational uh, Latinx churches. And so these questions emerged from my own personal work, and I felt like sociology would be uh, an advantageous pathway for me. I thought that the methods of sociology 
would be uh, amenable to some of the theological training that I had. And so I decided to pursue a PhD in sociology that would allow me to bring in some of these uh, theologically oriented questions that were also informed by my own life history. That's, that's, that's very, very interesting. And what kind of courses do you, do you teach there at, at Boston School of Theology? Yeah, so, well, one of the big pieces that I helped to sort of fulfill there, one of the roles that I fulfill there, uh, I would say revolves around research. And so my training in sociology translates into mentoring and teaching students um, about research, uh, community-based research, ethnographic research, qualitative research. We have a lot of students uh, there at BU School of Theology that are wanting to do research that involves um, conducting interviews, participant observation, going out into the field. And so some of the courses that I teach have to do with that. So like right now I'm teaching ethnographic research, um, ethnographic research methods as a course and really have a great batch of students that are just excited to get out into the field. Although right now, of course, not all the fields are open. Right. So, so we're reconceptualizing what it means to go out into the field. And for some, it means engaging people through virtual platforms, which if we think about it, that is an important part of our reality now. And so that isn't, I wouldn't say that that's an alternative to field work. I would say that it's a type of field work. And so we're working through these issues um, in live time right now in the class. So that's exciting because I get to teach the students, but I'm also learning from them. And I also teach classes like immigration and religion, uh, sociology of religion, sociology of religion in Latin America. That was an exciting course to teach as well. Uh, well, I mean, I'm excited about all the courses. All right, Jonathan, that, that's, that's fascinating. I, I, we could be talking about those courses here for a long time so many questions come up but let's stick to let's stick to your your forthcoming book with oxford university press again the title is the saints of santa Ana: faith and ethnicity in a mexican majority city uh, so I, I think we could start just by you talking a little bit about why the saints of santa Ana. what does that mean why that place and why that title sure well let me start with the second part why that place well to begin, on a personal level, it's a place that I've had a very strong connection to for a number of decades now. And as I introduce uh, the context in the beginning of the book, I talk about how Santa Ana, or as locals refer to it as Santana, uh, Santana was a place that was often understood as an ethnic space. Uh, a space of uh, ethnic resources, a space of ethnic performativity, uh, I would say throughout the region. So Santana is located in Orange County. Orange County is often thought of as sort of this, um, you know, conservative, um, this concentration of sort of conservative Republican politics. Traditionally, that's been changing now. But Santana was sort of the the heart of that region and was often looked to as kind of the ethnic hub, especially for the Latinx community. Uh, predominantly of Mexican background, I would say, uh, well, statistically speaking, but nevertheless, it was certainly a hub of Latinx activity in that region. And so for me growing up, I knew Santana as this ethnic hub. I also knew it as a place where my family and I would sometimes go to visit churches mm. uh, because there were many ethnic churches there. And so we would visit a number of different churches there from, you know, from time to time. And so in my mind, in my social imaginary, I would say uh, Santana was, was sort of this, this cultural center and this place to be ethnic, right? If you want to feel ethnic and be ethnic, here's a place that we can go to. Mm. And, and so eventually, because of some of the work I, I started to do in the nonprofit world, I got connected to some organizations there. Well, one in particular, which then opened the door to other organizations there in uh, Santana. 
And one thing led to another and I eventually became a resident of that city. And so, uh, and, and I would even add, I started to, my, my partner and I, we started to raise a family there in the city. And so it's a place that's um, very near and dear to us. And eventually we even um, started to do ministry work there in the community and got involved with other initiatives around the city. And so, so that's kind of the personal connection there. However, and there have been, you can look up and Google these articles. I'm, I cite some of them in the book, but media outlets started to notice that Santana was a unique place or is a unique place. I mean, you have the New York Times and the LA Times, for example, writing articles saying, hey, this is a place we need to pay attention to. So it's a majority Latinx city. Almost 80% of the residents are of Latin American origin or Latin American background. Mm. And uh, 80%, you know, a city of over 300,000 people and was one of the first cities of that size to elect an all Latinx city council. And so you have this emerging leadership within this larger region, which, as I said earlier, was traditionally recognized as sort of this enclave of uh, conservatism. And, And yet here is this working class Latinx hub that's emerging uh, and sort of on the forefront of demographic trends. Mm. And so uh, I would add that religion and spirituality uh, was also a central piece of the community life there. And so in my time in the community, I began to see just how central that was to local residents. And in fact, I would add that to tell the story of this city, we need to be aware of the spiritual communities that were emerging, that have been emerging there, or that have been present there for generations, particularly those uh, that are serving the Latinx community, that are for and by uh, the Latinx community. And so the idea of saints then emerged from, I would say, the presence of, so in a very simple kind of material way, there are many Catholic saints that are represented throughout the city. So you can find um, representations of Catholic saints uh, in, you know, images of them represented throughout the city, whether we're talking about at, at stores, at businesses, restaurants, uh, out in the community, um, there are shrines and altars uh, in front yards and backyards, uh, in the middle of apartment complexes. And so as I start at the beginning of uh, one of the chapters, I say, um, Santa Ana is a city of saints. Uh, interestingly enough, even the, the, the mascot of the high school there, uh, is called the saints. And that's a, it's one of the first high schools in the region. And so it's got a lot of history. So, you know, People are familiar with that term, saints, but I would also say that uh, within the immigrant community, folks, uh, folks have this awareness, this consciousness of, you know, there are saints here. You know, there are saints everywhere here. Right. Um, furthermore, um, for Protestants, Protestant evangelicals, the concept of uh, santidad, of being holy, of being saints, Um, That's a concept that was very prevalent in the congregations that I visited as well. And so I saw different instances of this concept of saints being played out throughout the city. And and so I I thought about it. I said, yes, it is. It is, in fact, a city of saints. It is a place that um, people understand. And then I, I expand on that concept and say, not only is it a city of individual saints but it's also a saintly a saintly city a holy place and so one of my arguments is that uh you know people the local residents make the city holy through their practices Mm, you know that's fascinating and 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 the way that they do it is that you differentiate like a, a few a few trajectories that 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 sainthood plays out in uh in in the city not only in the city but but in the way in which different religious traditions shape 
uh, ethnic identity, right? So you make a distinction between Catholic and evangelical differences in how they conceptualize ethnic identity. Uh, and then you just mentioned Protestant evangelicals. So I, I was wondering if you could, is that that can be a little bit of a contested term, especially in, for historians like myself. So I wonder when I saw the, the name, use the name evangelical, what do you mean by that? But I also wanted to talk a little bit more about how did you find out that Mexican Catholics and Mexican evangelicals are different regarding this intersection of religion and ethnic construction or ethnic maintenance that you documented? Okay, great. Those are some great questions. Should I answer the second part first or the... Take, take it how, however you will. Yeah, so that really is, I would say, the crux of the project, which is responding to this question of how these different traditions, these different affiliations influence the construction of ethnic identity. And specifically, I'm looking at differences between Catholics and evangelical Protestants. And not, I focus on differences, but there are places where I also highlight commonalities. So it isn't only about difference. Um, though that is one of the major arguments that I'm making, that there are significant differences which lead to diverging ethnic projects, ethnic identity projects within these, um, you know, communities, within these traditions. And so let me jump back to the, the question you asked earlier in terms of how I define evangelicals or evangelical Protestants. I would say that these are individuals that, evangelicals, I would say, number one, they're, they're Protestants. I, I know that may sound redundant, but uh, meaning they're, they're not Catholic, they're part of Protestant tradition, and yet as evangelicals, you know, they hold to certain practices and traditions, such as seeing the Bible as the word of God, seeing it as an, an inerrant, inspired uh, text that has been given uh, to the community to follow as a way of life. Um, there are certain views about Jesus, Jesus Christ, that also uh, are central to the evangelical system. And so in terms of like the divinity of Jesus, uh, in terms of the role of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, the centrality of those beliefs and doctrines. Um, and I would also add some of the practices such as evangelism, that really is a central piece. So even if I were just to say, well, let me define to you evangelicals within Santa Ana, I would say evangelism is a major part of the equation, uh, meaning, uh, evan uh, well, I was going to say evangelicals. Let me, I'll come back to that in a moment because there, there's an important caveat there saying evangelicals mm -hmm. versus evan uh, evangelicals versus evangelicals. There's a caveat mm -hmm. there. Okay. But for now, I'll say evangelicals. So evangelicals, in many ways, define themselves in terms of practices, define themselves by engaging in evangelism, meaning um, sharing their particular gospel message, um, sharing the message of Jesus, salvation in Jesus, personal salvation, right? Making a personal profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I conceptualize it within the book as having this altar encounter um, that people are expected to have, evangelicals expect people to have this altar encounter and they uh, really seek out opportunities to bring others to this altar encounter, mm -hmm. right? But um, so evangelicalism within the context that I was studying really revolves around uh, those aspects of, of Christian practice. Those are the particular aspects that they tend to elevate and highlight. Now, I want to say something in terms of uh, using the term uh, using the term evangelicals versus evangelicals, I've seen a number of scholars differentiate between you know evangelicals are in Latin America or Latinos in the United States, and they need to be differentiated from evangelicalism in the U.S. Um, 
So I'm going to say something that may bother a few folks, but I would say yes and no to that type of approach. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is this, yes, there are some differences between evangelicalism from a Latin American context, so evangelicals, and evangelicals in a U.S. context. There, there are some important differences, and a lot of them are rooted in class, in the immigrant experience, and largely also in the Latin American context. So practices and emphasis on particular doctrines that are really rooted in the Latin American context. So, so yes, I think if we're talking about evangelicals that come from this Latin American context, we shouldn't separate that context, even if they are now immigrants. Uh, there are many ways in which evangelicals bring that background to their receiving context. Now, here's the, the, the other side of the coin, which is the evangelicals that I studied, the churches, the congregations, the people, they still have very strong connections to white evangelicalism in the mm. U.S. That's interesting. Yeah, meaning that even though their churches are you know, culturally distinct in some ways, they also still like to be aware of what's happening within white evangelicalism and they still, um, you know, their, their antennas are still attuned to what's happening within the broader U.S. context. And it, and it varies from church to church. There are some evangelical churches that are really oriented towards Latin America. Maybe they are tied to organizations and leaders in Latin America. But particularly the denominational churches, um, they are often, you know, attuned to U.S.-based leadership structures and so so it's this i would say it's a tension there's a tension that exists between ev- being evangelical and being evangelical mm-hmm. no that, that that's really interesting the, the the group that i studied as well has this clo- is a denominational group that that, that has this network uh, that has the uh, this kind of close connection with with uh, white evangelicalism as well in many different ways. So I, I, I understand precisely what you're saying. Well, how about this, this, the, the ways in which this, the, the, the Mexican Catholic ethnic construction is, differs from the evangelical uh, no, Mexican kind of identity construction in, in immigrant communities here? Can you speak a little bit more about that? Yes, yeah, certainly. So that, that is a, a central piece of the book um, really parsing out how um, Catholic faith, Catholic practice plays into the construction of ethnic identity for Mexican immigrants. And so for many years and many generations, I would say, uh, the default way of being Mexican was seen as, the, de- the default, the authentic way of being Mexican was seen as being Catholic. And much of that is rooted in uh, ethno-religious practice around, for example, uh, La Virgen de Guadalupe, uh, but, but also a variety of other localized practices. And what I found in uh, interviewing the participants that I interacted with from, from local communities, that many of them understood their ethnic identity as being intertwined with their religious identity. They, they didn't necessarily see uh, a divide between those things amongst Catholics. Amongst Catholics, they saw their Catholicism and their Mexican identity as being, uh, being interconnected, being intertwined. And so what I wanted to get at was how, are, how is this connection, how is this relationship upheld? Because uh, it's one thing to say that it exists, but I also wanted to understand how do people reproduce this relationship? How do they uh, live it out? Mm. And and what I observed was that a lot of it was lived out through traditions and practices that pointed people back to the homeland. So folks would often um, celebrate certain feast days, for example, that they were familiar with from their hometown in Mexico. Um, 
And let me say, I don't know if I've clarified, but the book is focused on immigrants. So first generation. So these are folks that, um, that migrated from Mexico to the US. I interacted with some of their extended families, which included second generation, uh, you know, 1.5 second generation, uh, younger folk as well. Um, but these were immigrants. Some of them were young also, but um, these, these were all immigrants, right? So, so in other words, they had experiences in their homeland, in their quote unquote homeland or sending region, and then they now had to adapt to life in the US. So they all shared that aspect in common, crossing the border, coming to the US. And so many of the ways that they maintained a sense of continuity with self was through replicating these traditions that they had maintained in the homeland. Even, even those that came at a very young age, they were conscious. There was a, there was a consciousness about maintaining something that had been transmitted to them. Hmm. Um, and I can't say enough. I, I mentioned already um, the centrality of La Virgen de Guadalupe. And I'll say that again, because for many of the folks that I interviewed, she really was a symbol of Mexican identity. Some of them would tell me things like, you know, to be Mexican is to be Guadalupano. Mm. And both um, women and men um, really stressing the, the connection that they felt to La Virgen de Guadalupe. Uh, you know, one respondent, for example, told me, you know, this is something special that God has given us. Um, to have La Virgen de Guadalupe, and it's up to us to share her with others, mm -hmm. right? So even being very evangelistic about mm -hmm. this as well. And so, you know, this, this was a theme that came up time and again in my conversations. Uh, but even going beyond just the conversation and spending time with people allowed me to see how folks embodied the practices, right? Um, spending time in prayer gatherings and processions and things like that, seeing that there's actual... Um, physical labor that's taking place in these devotional practices, you know, carrying an image of La Virgen de Guadalupe, uh, you know, physically praying, engaging in prayer practices, kneeling, all these things. These are ways to embody this tradition, right? More than just kind of having it in, in your mind. And mm. so I, I also talk about, um, you know, material culture and the symbols. Uh, when you live in a neighborhood where the symbols remind you of um, traditions from the homeland and seeing, for example, altars. Um, altars play a big role in many of the Catholic practices that I took part in in the community where, um, you know, folks take care of these altars in their front yards and, um, and in other public spaces and those traditions of taking care of the altars, those, those come from the homeland as well. And even who, you know, like particular images are sometimes tied to particular towns. Um, and it, I mentioned La Virgen de Guadalupe, but it, some, some people had other patron saints mm -hmm. that, that they would focus on that reminded them of their homeland. And so, uh, you know, for example, some respondents that I spoke to were from the region of Oaxaca, which is a predominantly indigenous region, uh, has a you know, high percentage of indigenous residents uh, in, in Mexico. And mm. for them, much of their devotion revolved around La Virgen de Juquila. Mm. And so she was uh, another uh, iteration of the Holy Mother there in Oaxaca. And so for them, they would gather together with other um, with other paisanos and have certain practices focused on La Virgen de Juquila. And so again, there's this constant um, remembrance of the homeland through these practices. Mm. Well, that, that's interesting. Uh, that, that, that actually fascinated me. How about the, how about the, the, the evangelical immigrants, the evangelical Mexican immigrants? Uh, it, it seems that there's some construction or reconstruction happening uh, there as well that involves, but not in the same way, this, this, this national symbol. Yes. So, uh, and again, I've, I've read 
scholars that may differ with this opinion, um, but amongst the respondents that I spoke to, um, there was a very strong rupturing from these Catholic practices that were central to their Catholic neighbors' uh, mm. lives. And so many of the traditions that had to do with saints, um, with La Virgen de Guadalupe, uh, evangelicos were strongly opposed to these. The, the grand majority of the evangelicos that I interviewed were strongly opposed to these practices because to them, these were practices that represented their past. Mm. And so one of the, the themes that emerged in, from my interviews and my field work was this construction of the past and uh, you know, thinking about who one was in the past and who one is now. And the experience of conversion was central to the evangelical experience. Um, it's a conversionistic tradition. Right. So for evangelicals, it was important to assert that they've had this conversion experience. With that conversion experience came this negotiation of, well, there are certain things that are part of my past that I need to let go of. Mm. And very often, Catholic traditions were conceptualized as the past. Oh, I see. And... So in some ways, this is a form of identification that, that was rooted in negation and sort of saying, that's not us. I see. Hmm. And now there are some caveats there. Um, so let me tell a story that sort of illustrates this, this kind of tension. Uh, one of the informants that I spoke with, um, Rodrigo, he's in, in, featured in the book, uh, Rodrigo shared with me a story uh, that really troubled him, and it was about his sister, and his sister had become evangelica. And so Rodrigo shared with me how his sister came to his home and brought a number of items, uh, religious items, with her, and they were, you know, Catholic devotional items, and she, she brought them to his home and said, I can't have these in my home anymore. I'm, I'm a Christian now. And so often evangelicals would refer to themselves as Cristianos or Christian. Mm. Uh, and of course, Catholics uh, are Christian as well. But even many Catholics would refer to evangelicals as Cristianos. So there was some sort of um, linguistic um, discourse there that had, you know, the labeling that was taking place was one of the things that I tried to be mindful of. But uh, she said, I'm, I'm, Christ I'm a Christiana now, and so I can't have these items in my home anymore. And so she brought them to Rodrigo and, and dropped them off there at the house. And he was really bothered. He was angry. He was sad. And he said that one of the things that bothered him was that his mother felt really hurt by what his sister had done. He said, I can't believe that she did that. And he quoted his mother several times. And he said, one of the phrases that he said, he said, uh, his mother said to him, Recuérdale que tiene madre. Mm. Remind her that she has a mother. Mm. And there was a, there's a double meaning to that phrase, you know, remind her that she has a mother. Because the mother was saying, his mother was saying, you know, re remind her that, you know, that I'm here. Right. In other words, she took personal offense to her sister. I mean, to her daughter dropping off these items. But she was also saying, remind her that she has a mother, meaning La Virgen de Guadalupe, because amongst those items were some images of La Virgen de Guadalupe as well. Mm. And so that particular story illustrates this, um, this negotiation taking place where uh, Rodrigo's sister felt the need to let go of these items and yet she didn't destroy them she didn't throw them away she brought them to him so there was a level of respect strangely enough mm. that she didn't get rid of them completely she brought them to a place where they would be cared for and so i think that we have to take that into consideration that she was sort of negotiating 
the best way to to distance yourself from the practice but do it in a way that was somewhat respectful still hmm. no that's that, that 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 is a fascinating story so you talk about in your book something that is related to the story uh which is this idea of uh of intra-ethnic intra policing now with the this in the book you say that it is a disposition that is more commonly pre commonly present in among roman catholics but it is uh you know equal well, not equally but somewhat present in evangelical uh, communities as well. So I wondered how that affected, uh, not only how that plays out in your research, but how that affected your own positionality as a researcher who identifies uh, himself with one of these communities. Can you, can you share us a little, uh, with us a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. So, uh, so this concept of authenticity policing, uh, a concept that's been developed by a number of um, sociologists and it looks at how groups tend to elevate certain symbols, certain markers as sort of the epitome of their peoplehood. Uh, in fact, the definition of ethnicity talks about how certain cultural symbols become the epitome of that group's identity, right? And in the communities that I was studying, it was quite obvious that devotion to La Virgen de Guadalupe was one of those symbols. And so authenticity policing is a way to describe how defining group belonging, how that's taking place, how it's playing out. And it's this questioning of people uh, who claim membership in a group or membership in a group identity. It's a way to question whether they really are invested in the group, whether they really should be a part of the group, whether they have the right to identify with the group. And what I observed was that uh, many of the evangelicals had this experience of being policed, uh, of experiencing authenticity policing, of being questioned about their authenticity as Mexicans. Uh, in other words, being seen as not Mexican enough because they were Protestant, because they were evangelicals. Mm. So in that sense, in that sense, the phenomenon is, I would say, more prevalent from Catholic to Protestant, but that's only because Catholics are still the majority. In other words, it's not as if, it's not as if evangelicals were passive in the experience and it's not as if evangelicals are not pushing back or are not doing things that may trigger this questioning mm. and so in fact i also talk about how evangelicals would engage in certain activities that would you know elicit this response from catholics to question them and and in some ways would go on the offensive as well meaning evangelicals would sometimes go on the offensive mm -hmm. to kind of um elicit certain responses. Uh, so I tell a story, for example, of uh, a woman that I call Mariela, and she shares with me how she used to frequently get invited to uh, parties that her neighbors would host. And, you know, like uh, bautizos, you know, baptism parties, uh, baptism, christening parties. Um, she would get invited to, and other things, quinceañeras, other types of um, local festivities. And she would get invited to these parties. And she felt like her friends started to distance themselves from her uh, because she became evangelica. And she talks about how they distanced themselves from her. Like, in other words, they, they slowly started to push her out of the group. However, she describes some of the interaction she had with them and it was fairly clear that some of what she was doing as well was drawing out this kind of response from her friends and neighbors so she talked about how you know she was invited to a certain party and her friends were praying the rosary mm. and she talks about how she says i started to pray the way that i know how to pray now mm. and so she started to pray and say hallelujah and other things and so she says that people were kind of turning around and looking to her, you know, because she was um, obviously praying in a way different 
than her friends and neighbors that were there. And, and she says, and I didn't pray to La Virgen de Guadalupe because she isn't real. You know, that's what mm -hmm. she told me. And so, uh, you know, being very outward about her particular forms of praying, you know, it caught their attention in, in a not, not in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And so they felt uncomfortable having her there because she was very vocal. She became very vocal about uh, her own ways of praying and her own traditions. So these, these kind of encounters, uh, they're not one-way encounters, but for many of the evangelicals, they felt like their faith brought about suspicion from their Catholic co-ethnics. And so that's, that's the ethnic authenticity policing, intra-ethnic authenticity policing that I uh, identify in the book. But as I'm saying, but as I'm, I hope comes through, it's, it's a, it's a two-way street, yes. right? It's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. And even though, even though Catholics, we may think of Catholics as a minority in the U.S., in these neighborhoods, uh, in these Mexican majority neighborhoods, Catholics are the majority, so the evangelicals really feel that they are in the minority. I mean, they are, numerically speaking, uh, but they, they don't necessarily feel like, well, I'm part of this Protestant majority in the U.S. No, they actually, their day-to-day -day experience is of being in the minority. And so that's, that's the experience that they embody, particularly for uh, many of these immigrants that are undocumented, that being in the community is really uh, a space of sanctuary for them. And Santa Ana is a sanctuary city or was declared a sanctuary city a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. And so ethnic enclaves really take on that sanctuary experience for many of these immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so the experience of being in the minority is quite salient to them. It's, it's very pronounced. And that's mm -hmm. the experience that oftentimes or one experience that oftentimes defines who they are in terms of their religion and their ethnicity. This feeling of being in the minority, of not quite being made to feel like you belong as a non-Catholic. I see. Thank you. No, that's, that, that is fascinating. Uh, another thing that was really interesting to me, uh, Jonathan, in, in your book was, was this idea of of religion being a central element for ethnic formation and also for this correlated construction of a, of a national myth. Now you talk a little bit about that. And that, that seems relevant not only for the study of immigrants, but also for understanding broader political polarization in the United States, for example, right? Because it seems to me that this, this idea of conflicting national myths that, are, that, are, that, that religions legitimize or help construct undergird these important notions of progressive and conservative projects that we see. I mean, we just, we are recording this, um, you know, just after the first presidential debate that was, uh, you know, what it was. Uh, it was so much polarization that we saw there. Uh, in my own kind of line of study, I, I see religion uh, as a historian who have studied like Southern Baptist missions to Latin America, mm -hmm. missionaries who bring kind of this lost cause Confederate spirit uh, that has religion and national mythologies being built together. That, that kind of dynamic is, is very relevant and very kind of explicit, as is um, you know, this idea of, of the connection between the new Republican Party and, and white evangelicals and so on. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering about, when you talk about this kind of religion shaping the form of, of, of conflicting Mexican national mythologies, what, what, what do you mean by that? If you can talk a little bit more about that. How is this memory and then through memory, ethnic identity being shaped by Mexican Catholics and by, and by Mexican evangelicals in the U.S.? Yeah, certainly. So uh, going back to uh, the centrality of La Virgen de Guadalupe, there uh, really is what I would say um, a, national, a national myth. And again, we use the term myth, not as a, as a way to sort of dispute whether um, the story in question happened or not, but rather that the story embodies uh, a, a deeply symbolic meaning that it represents something 
to this imagined community, that it represents uh, an identity to the community, right? So uh, this create sort of, we could think of it as a creation myth or an origin myth, right? Which is uh, when La Virgen de Guadalupe appeared to um, now San Juan Diego, right? And so this story is often reenacted uh, within some of the communities that I, that I studied, or in the very least, aspects of this story are taken and remembered and really embodied through, um, through dress, through dance, through um, storytelling, through music. And so this ties into national identity, as you've pointed out, uh, meaning that La Virgen de Guadalupe is a national symbol. And as I was talking to some scholars from Latin America recently, um, one of them pointed out to me, she said, well, you're looking at Mexican identity as an ethnic, as a quote unquote ethnic identity. She said, but for me, being in Mexico, being Mexican is a national identity. We don't think of Mexicanidad, Mexicanness, as, a, as an ethnic identity. We think of it as a national identity. But once people migrate, then it becomes their ethnic identity because now they're in a minority. Mm. Uh, but in Mexico, it's part of a national identity. It's nationalistic. Uh, and, and so there's a history of the, of the nation. You know, there was even a coronation ceremony for La Virgen de Guadalupe over a century ago uh, in Mexico. And so the symbol of La Virgen de Guadalupe uh, in some ways comes to represent nationhood uh, in, in Mexico. And so we have to think about what that means then even in more recent um, acts of social action. So we, we look at, for example, um, the work of Cesar Chavez mm -hmm. and La Virgen de Guadalupe there came to really represent uh, the work that he was doing, right? And so why is that important? Again, because she represents the people. She represents uh, a sense of peoplehood uh, for Mexican people. And so uh, within the communities that I was studying, this then gets translated to both day-to-day -day practice, uh, to devotional practices that are now being incorporated into the church. And we see and this was a great example of seeing how immigrants are shaping the church in the U.S. The Catholic churches that I visited, the parishes that I visited, um, have really incorporated many of these practices into the life of the church. Hmm. And I know that varies by region. I know that, that that's not happening everywhere. I know that in some places there is tension around hmm. some of these practices. But in the parishes that I visited, and for example, one of the priests that I spoke with, he said, you know, I encourage people to maintain the practices that they bring from Mexico. He said, some of them have been told that these practices are wrong, that they're incorrect. He says, but I believe that they are right and that they need to maintain them. Mm. And so, so having that sense of welcome and this sense of um, seeing these practices as not secondary, that was a theme that came through in some of the parishes that I visited. And, and I think that that helped empower people, uh, not just in their religious practices, but I, I noticed that in some of those parishes, there were organizing efforts going on, mm -hmm. political organizing efforts, you know, community organizing, mm -hmm. where I think there's a correlation. I think if people have a sense of an ethnic slash national identity and seeing that as something to mobilize around and then digging deeper and seeing what are the issues affecting our community. People often feel empowered because there's a sense of institutional backing, the church is backing them. And there's also a sense of a spiritual backing, you know? So um, I, I saw that in some of the Catholic churches. Now it was different in the evangelical churches. Uh, I emphasize that the evangelical churches talk a lot about rupturing with the past, right? Mm -hmm. So it may be, that may be interpreted to, to mean that, well, does that mean that evangelical churches have no tradition? Are you saying that evangelicals don't have any tradition? And that's, that's actually not the case. So 
when visiting evangelical churches, I found that there was actually a deep history there as well. And it's easy to conceptualize evangelicals as newcomers, mm-hmm. as, you know, well, they just showed up, you know, finally in the last couple of decades or, you know, maybe white, maybe white evangelicals, you know, did some evangelistic efforts and, you know, brought some Latinos to convert. But actually what I found in the city of Santa Ana was that there's this old history of uh, Latino Protestants that were there in the city for over a century, you know, close to a century and a half, really, the effort mm-hmm. started. And so for many evangelicals, particularly a lot of the leaders, they were able to tie their histories to these older movements, mm. right? And they were able to say, you know, hey, we're not less ethnic because we're Protestant. We actually have ties to these older Latino Protestant movements. And mm-hmm. so that helped them to conceptualize their sense of Latinidad and Mexicanness within this larger history. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say this, and here's a caveat. I, I, I noticed that more frequently among leaders and pastors. I don't know that that was necessarily trickling down to the average parishioner. Okay. So I've heard of cases um, in other places, like in Texas, um, a colleague, for example, Aida Ramos has um, studied a case where, um, in San Antonio, actually, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken, yeah. where, you know, the pastor, yeah, the pastor actually uh, educates members on their church history, right? And so I didn't see, it, so that's a great case study that, that, that she's undertaken. Mm-hmm. I didn't see a lot of that in the cases that I looked at, mm-hmm. but I, I did see it taking place within the personal histories of the leaders and the pastors. Mm-hmm. Whereas many of them had these old generational histories in Protestantism. And, uh, and so that translated to their sense of ethnicity being tied to this older history, this older spiritual history. Uh, but with, within the members, their focus tended to be on conversion and rupture from the past. So, mm-hmm. so there's something there. There's something there to think about, I think, yeah. for leaders to think about. Yeah, no, it, it, but it seems to me that that in order to even if you're going to reconstruct a new past, doesn't matter how far as you go, you have to rupture from the past that's there, right? So in a sense, yeah. some form of rupture seems to be kind of uh, it seems to to you know to, yeah. to happen in a way or another. Can if I if I may add something else as well? So what I did find also was that because of this you know emphasis on rupturing with the past, uh, I think. And maybe this is a larger statement, but I think as people, we, as human beings, we want to have a sense of being connected, of being rooted to something, mm-hmm. right? Of having some sort of history of, of coming from somewhere. And what I noticed is that amongst the evangelicals, the emphasis was often placed on coming from the stories, the narratives that they read in the Old Testament. So I found in the Hebrew scriptures, I found that many of them identified powerfully with the Hebrew scriptures. Mm-hmm. And so there was this interesting performative element to that identification, meaning that some of the churches that I visited would incorporate symbols and elements of what they perceived to be um, Hebraic tradition or Jewish tradition, and they would bring it into their uh, worship practices. Mm-hmm. And I interpret that as a way to reconceptualize their ethnicity. Mm. I really saw it as a way of, you know, they let go of certain ethnic practices, but now they are integrating these other practices that they understand to be permissible because why? They're in the Bible. So we're going to draw from these Jewish and Hebraic practices. And we're gonna construct our ethnicity around those. Mm. No, that 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 is fascinating, uh, uh, Jonathan. Another fascinating aspect that that you noticed, and and I, and I would like you to comment on this if you could, uh, was that uh, depending on the kind of past 
that inform these two competing uh, ethnic identities or ethnic self-understandings, uh, questions of assimilation or, or issues of assimilating into U.S. culture uh, or one paths to, you know, to, to assimilation would differ. Um, and, and I know that you, you, you criticize the fact that, that, that uh, def defining ethnicity has been overdetermined by talk of assimilation. But nevertheless, th th there are different paths that you noticed from uh, Mexican Catholics and Mexican evangelicals or evangelicals that touch on, on linguistic practices, um, you know, civic practices and beyond. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. So, uh, and this, some of this comes from research I had done previously uh, looking at uh, maintenance of Spanish at home and I had a previous publication uh, in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion with uh, uh, a co-author, Stan Bailey, who was my then um, dissertation uh, advisor. And so we looked at how uh, Latinos maintain Spanish at home along the lines of religion. And we found that Catholics were more likely to speak Spanish at home than Protestants were. And part of the argument that we made is really this larger argument that I've been developing in this volume, which is that uh, Catholics are better at maintaining a retrospective perspective. Now, when I say that, I don't mean, by saying retrospective, I don't mean something like regressive, or being stuck in the past. That's not what I mean. I mean that the traditions, the practices do a better job of creating space for a collective memory. Mm. That's what I mean. Mm. Um, whereas Protestants, I think, don't always do as strong of a job of creating space for collective memory. Mm. Um, now, certainly there are that, you know, there are micro level memories that get passed on and institutionalized. I would argue that the experience of conversion and of sharing testimonials, you know, these are practices that become institutionalized and even routinized and are mm. passed on. So again, practices are being passed on, but tying together some of the things you asked earlier, you know, these national myths, these stories about who we are as a people, um, these kind of things I found were better encapsulated within Catholicism than um, within Protestantism. Uh, I don't think that that has to be the case. And I think that there are counterexamples. But when I looked at, generally, when I looked at different Protestant evangelical churches, that seemed to be the case. So what does that mean in terms of assimilation or acculturation? Well, when we think about how uh, Latinx populations adapt to life in the U.S., part of that adaptation process has to do with maintaining and reconceptualizing certain aspects of the homeland and also adopting new practices and new strategies from the receiving context. And so I argue that Catholicism provides certain, let's call them containers, you know, containers for storing some of these practices and strategies and traditions and memories that have to do with being part of this uh, ethnic group, right? Whereas uh, Protestantism, because it had, well, within the communities I studied, evangelicals had such a strong emphasis on rupturing with the past. And so, the focus there, I think, can very easily, it doesn't have to, but can very easily turn to, well, who are we going to be here in this country? Let's focus now on what resources and strategies we're going to draw on from the host nation, from the new receiving context. Now, let me take a step farther back. When we think about questions of assimilation and acculturation, we have to think not only in terms of individuals, but we have to take a cross-generational perspective because really assimilation 
doesn't happen just on an individual level. It's a, it's an intergenerational process. And so the challenge for both traditions, I'll, I'll say, not just for one, for both traditions, the challenge then becomes how is a sense of peoplehood, a sense of tradition, a sense of rootedness being passed on across generations, right? And in my conclusion, I sort of, I turned my attention to this question of, well, the challenge for the Catholic Church and based on some of the conversations I had with people, the challenge really seems to be, can we keep people, can we keep younger folk, second, third generation people, can we keep them in the church, right? The conversations that tended to happen within the evangelical Protestant congregations tended to be, can we keep the second generation in the Latino church? They want to go to white churches. Can we keep them in the Latino church? Mm. And one of the challenges I think for uh, in the Catholic church was oftentimes, at least within the people that I talked to, um, was oftentimes helping people to young, younger people, helping them to maintain their uh, involvement, their connection to the local parish. Mm. Uh, And then again, with the evangelical churches, People were very congregationally minded, but some of the younger folks were wanting to go to predominantly white or multi-ethnic churches. And often it revolved around the question of language. So tying together some of these loose ends, one of the big questions was, what language do we worship in? And so that was one of the major congregations, I'm sorry, that was one of the major conversations that was happening within the evangelical churches. What language do we want to offer the people? Mm, fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's a, it's a fascinating book, and, and I think it's going to start many, many enriching conversations. appreciate this contribution. And let me ask you this. What, what are you working on now? What's, what's next for, for you? Yeah, so, uh, well, number one, part two of this book um, is in the works already. I mean, in, in early phases, early stages. But One of the things, and maybe I didn't stress this enough, bits and pieces of it come through, but this first book, it really emphasizes life in the community, lived religion in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So when I say community, in this case, I mean neighborhood, the ethnic enclave. And I really spent time observing out and about in public space and semi-private spaces as in like neighborhoods, homes, things like that, that I was invited into. And I did spend time in churches as well, but I left a lot of that observation for this part two. Mm. And so part two is going to be not so much about what's happening in the neighborhoods. Uh, There is an element of that, but part two will focus on churches as institutions and how are churches as institutions shaping ethnic and also racial identities for congregants. And I'm, I'm expanding on the, the people that I'm including in this study. Part one was about Mexicans, mm-hmm. um, Mexican immigrants. Part two will be about uh, the Latinx community broadly, not just Mexican immigrants. Mm-hmm. So we'll look at generational, intergenerational relationships, and we'll look at also um, pan-ethnic mm. uh, connections. So a lot of these churches uh, were majority Mexican, but they were also pan-ethnic. There were people from Central America, South America, the Caribbean that are represented there as well. So for this next portion of the study, I take into account the broader pan-ethnic community that's present there. And it'll still be based in Santa Ana, mm. uh, but I included additional interviews and also uh, included additional field work. And, and, and also I'm including an additional site that wasn't a part of the first book. And that is an Episcopal church. Hmm. So that provides even a, a completely different perspective, really a fascinating case, which I'm excited to also talk about. So that's, that's a big project. Uh, and it's, that one 
the undertaking for that project was sponsored by the Latino Protestant Congregations Project. Mm -hmm. So that's in the works right now as a book. And then I've got another project I'm working on as well, which I had started when I was in graduate school and then I put it on hold. And this is a project on Latinos and hip hop. Mm. And it's looking at the historical development of Latino artists in Los Angeles in the 1980s and looking at the emergence of Latino hip hop in Los Angeles before it reached national exposure with uh, some, you know, well-known artists like Mellow Man Ace and Kid Frost. I'm looking at the period before that and really uh, Latinos were in the mix, but I look at negotiations of race and ethnicity, uh, issues of class, city geographies, uh, and spirituality and religion, which was a central piece, believe it or not, of the development of hip hop among Latinos in Los Angeles. I also look at black and brown relations, uh, which I think is a, a, a critical topic that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. uh, and Afro-Latinx identities, even in Los Angeles, yes, it is a thing. So, um, so I look at some of these intersections that are present during a season that is, there's very little on this season, let me say, there's very little research on this, uh, on this era of artistic development. And so I'm excited about that project as well. Fascinating, fascinating work, Jonathan. Looking forward to seeing those as well. Thank you very much for your time, man. Appreciate you. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.